Hello and welcome to Metaphorically Speaking with me, Delia Delore. Each week we invite a special guest to discuss a certain metaphor, mantra or phrase with us, one that might resonate with you too. I hope you had a great weekend and today is the start of an exciting week. Many people don't like Mondays, but I really love them. I think that someone's attitude on a Monday sets the scene for the rest of the week. What do you think? In today's episode, we're going to approach a question everyone has asked themselves at least once. How do I become my best self? It's quite an intriguing topic, isn't it? We'll discuss what this metaphor means to one another and how to overcome the obstacles that separate us from our goals. beginning of mankind, the human race has always looked to reach its highest potential. First, it was a question of survival. In a time when humans weren't as technologically advanced as today, we were just animals amongst others. Our ancestors had to remember every place, every technique and every trick they could use in order to perpetuate the species' survival. Humans 50,000 years ago were survival specialists. They had a detailed mental map of their territory, their senses were fine-tuned to the environment, they knew and memorized a great amount of information about plants and animals. They could make complicated tools that required years of careful training and very fine motor skills. Their bodies compared to our athletes today just because of their daily routines, and they lived a rich social life within their tribe. Survival required so many skills that the average brain volume of early modern humans might even have been bigger than it is today. As a group, we know more today, but as individuals, our ancestors were superior to us. However, be reassured that there's no need to go back to living in a cave. Nowadays, the best way to improve our mind is to get our brains busy through reading or even doing arithmetic, for example. It might not sound like much fun, but it has been proven to be an incredibly efficient way. Take one of the most well-known geniuses of all time, Leonardo da Vinci. He was a painter, inventor, mathematician, scientist, engineer, architect, sculptor, botanist, musician, writer, and philosopher. That's the kind of CV none of us could compete with. Even though da Vinci continually did amazing things throughout his life, such as drawing the plans for a flying machine 400 years before the first human flight, what led him to be a genius was his constant curiosity to learn and his sense of hard work. Hence the fact that one of his most famous quotes is, Learning never exhausts the mind. A sheer will to learn can make us grow as individuals, and as our ancestors proved, it can connect us to what human nature is all about, evolving, learning, and progressing. Such as da Vinci, many artists, athletes, and businessmen after him talked about the importance of hard work over a so-called natural talent. Jax Brel, a Belgian singer, whose work is one of the most influential in the French-speaking world, said during 1971, I'm convinced of one thing, talent does not exist. Talent is desiring to do something. I believe that desiring to achieve a dream is talent. All the rest is sweat, perspiration and discipline. I don't know art. I don't know artists. I believe that there are people who work on something with a lot of energy. 
I don't believe in coincidence of nature. Here's a clip of him doing what he does best. Avec la mer du nord pour dernier terrain vague et des vagues de dunes pour arrêter les vagues et de vagues rochers que les marées dépassent et qui ont à jamais le cœur à marée basse avec infiniment de brumes à venir avec le vent de l'est écoutez le tenir le plat pays qui est le mien However, contrary to popular belief, a trope used in films such as 2014's Lucy starring Scarlett Johansson or the movie Limitless with Bradley Cooper, we already use 100% of our brain. We even do it daily. Each and every one of us already has the capacity to learn, to become smarter and so to unleash our true potential. We just need to train our brains. Not only by doing maths and physics can we train it, but each of our actions fully requires our brain to do them. That's why reading or practicing sports are great ways to boost and look after our brain capacities and mental health. So, as you can understand, we can't and we don't need to become superheroes to unleash our highest potential. Our true powers are our will and capacity to be curious, learn and work hard. Only in this way can we improve ourselves and achieve what we're meant to do. So now it's time to chat with this week's guest. Today I'll be talking to Beverly Douglas, a retired police officer. Apart from sharing her experiences on the beat, she describes how she unleashed another angle of her potential by writing her book, Cutie. Beverly, thank you so much for joining me on Metaphorically Speaking. I saw your book and it's called Cutie, but I smiled. Um, I don't know whether that was the effect <laughs> that you wanted uh, people to have. Maybe you can uh, tell us about that a little later. But uh, first of all, um, I wanted to ask you about the metaphor that we're discussing today. It comes in many different variations unleashing your highest potential and unleashing your potential. They're all different ways of saying it. And I wanted to find out how do you say it and does it in any way affect or take part in some way in your life and your career? Gosh, there's there's quite a lot that you've asked me there. So um, what am I unleashing, my metaphor? Um, it's about me, it's about um, talking about my inner self um, and really just a way of discovering the inner me through writing. And what would you say about unleashing your highest potential or unleashing your potential? What does that mean to you? I think it means to get the best out of who I am I've always tried to aim high and achieve in a way that many will probably think is impossible, 
by having the confidence and the inner wisdom of who I am and who I've become in order to do that through um, working with other people, by being mentored and by not being selfish and thinking that I can do it just by myself, but knowing that I've always got a support network around me to bring the best out of me. Now, in your career, especially right at the beginning of your career within the police force, can you think of any times where you have had to talk to someone who perhaps was on the verge of committing an offence and trying to, to tell them that they have potential and that they should perhaps try to get themselves on the right path? Throughout my 30-year career, I think that's what I did constantly. Um, being a police officer, it's not always about arresting people at the um, every given opportunity. It's about negotiations um, and um, sometimes having to plead with people because you can see the good in them. And although they may have done something or are close to being arrested, you can see that it's not necessarily the best way forward for that person because of where they are in their lives. So what I would do is sometimes talk myself out of the arrest and try to signpost them into, um, it could be therapy, it could be um, going and staying with a family member to take them out of the situation. Um, or um, sometimes it was just physically taking them in the car with me and saying, right, I'm going to take you somewhere where I know you're going to be safe, but if you come across me again, then I'll have to deal with you. And that negotiation often helped, and um, that's how you grow respect for the people who are, you know, on the other side of the law or um, heading that way. And how did you become involved with the law? Because in those days, it wasn't... Uh, one of the choice occupations or careers to be in. How did you start? No, it wasn't indeed. I joined the Special Constabulary at the age of um, 19, 18 and a half, 19, having failed the exam for the regulars three times. Um, so I was a special for five years. And then in 1988, I joined the regulars and um, pleased to say that I did a 30-year career as a regular officer. It was difficult back then. Um, it wasn't a, a career of choice. And um, with all the inner city problems you had around um, rioting, the 1980 riots, um, the police as a service wasn't um, favorable to black people. But um, I saw beyond that and I believe that if you were not in within the organization, there was no way you could affect change. And how much did your experience affect you wanting to become an author of QT? That came at the end of my career. My last posting was a school in Bristol and um, I was speaking to the librarian about our childhood and the two of us began um, laughing like two young kids, um, 
reminiscing about our childhood and she told me to capture what we were talking about. So sometime later I went home and um, started typing on the computer and it just rolled and rolled and rolled and I didn't stop. So now of course you must tell us about the book. My book Cutie is um, about my parents coming to the UK from Jamaica during the uh, Windrush generation in the 1950s. I uh, grew up in Bristol. I'm the youngest of six children. And during that time, there was very few places for kids to play. Felix Road Adventure Playground was um, set up by local parents in 1972, I believe. And that's where I spent all my childhood. I spoke to um, some friends, uh, or oh, sorry, my, my parents spoke to some friends and um, they uh, secured the adventure playground. So I talk about the feral child that I am in the book, how myself and my favorite um, playmate, one of the main characters, Paulette, got into quite a lot of scrapes in the adventure playground and I document that from the time it, it um, we, we began in um, 74 right through to 18. Now before the playground what did playing consist of? Gosh that consisted of um, a bike between six of us, a scooter, ropes, um, swinging on um, trees playing conkers and um, dodging cars we played in the street um, my parents lived in St Paul's and there were lots of bomb sites around at that time so um, and full of rat infestation so obviously I was a lot younger but my brothers would have um, used their catapults to fire at the rats um, that were on the bomb site <laughs> oh my gosh now in writing the book, I'm sure lots of things came to mind that you thought, oh my gosh, I forgot about that bit. And maybe in reading back, you think, oh, I should have included that. Are there any particular moments that you can tell us about? Um, yeah, gosh, there's lots of moments I can tell you about. But obviously, I don't want to spoil, give, give away too much because um, yes. I, I, I'd like the readers to enjoy it. But um, Portland Square, there was a, um, a church, which is still there, that I used to go to Brownies um, to. And I describe in the book um, about going on a nature walk that took us from um, the church to Newfoundland Road, which was um, the park there, St Agnes Park. That park is now... Uh, another adventure playground, which is uh, St Paul's Adventure Playground. So I describe in the book how my brothers um, got conkers from the trees. Oh my gosh, and, I remember those days, conkers. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. on a Sunday they would, um, instead of paying for their collection from Sunday school, they would um, buy sweets in the, the local shop and um, prepare their conkers for the following week. Oh, I'll tell you, that's, 
oh, the, those are childhood memories that the children nowadays, I don't care what they say about technology. And I think that these memories, they just, they're a lifetime of, of, of memories that the children nowadays will not experience in the same way as, you know, as we did, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. It's, um, it's interesting because it's taken me on a historical journey um, and I discovered that before the Adventure Playground was um, opened, it was a colliery um, for mining. So there is something in there for everybody. There's a lot. Um, there's a lot of emotion, and um, I, I, I was a what would they would call a badass or a bad kid, who um, from eight o'clock, ten o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock at night I'd go without food and we'd have jam sandwiches or bread and butter sandwiches and water and um, during the summer months that's where I spent my, my time and it was the happiest days of my life and that is something that I, I needed to share with um, with all the readers. So where can we find your book? My book is um, on Silverwood Books, they are my publishers uh, obviously Amazon, um, uh, from me, if you want a personal copy, I will sign it and send it to you. Um, and you can find more information on my website, if I'm allowed to say what my website is. Yes, go ahead, please. It's beverlydouglas.com. And I'm on all social media networks as Beverly Douglas or Beverly Douglas author. Can you sp spell it all out? Because, you know, there are different ways of spelling Beverly and Douglas. So yes. let's spell it out. Yeah. So the book is called Cutie, C-U-T-I-E, which is my nickname, which my father gave me. Oh, Beverly. that's where it came from. Okay. Yeah. Beverly is B-E-V-E-R-L-E-Y. And then Douglas, D-O-U-G-L-A-S. Wonderful. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you and um but you know before i go on to ask you one more question yeah who would you say cutie is for we've got you know christmas coming up i think it could be a wonderful christmas gift but who would you say this book should be picked up by delia anybody who can read from the age of seven right through to 60. It's a, it's a book that um, obviously teenagers will probably get more out of it, but if you have a, a good reading age, and um, I'm not very good with key stages, but if you have a good reading age mm -hmm. and an understanding of humor, adult life as well, it will suit a teenager 15, 16, right through. All right, well, Beverly, thank you so much for being with us today. And of course, we wish you the best with your book. And uh, I hope that you keep that wonderful smile. You do. I can see why your father would call you cutie because <laughs> you've got those, those big cheeks and oh, nice oval face. So um, if you want to go online, listeners, and see what I'm just what I'm describing to you now, 
you know what to do. Go to BeverlyDouglas.com as well, and then go to Amazon. You can also go to the Metaphorically Speaking Delia Facebook and Instagram pages where we'll have the information there. So all the best, Beverly, and uh, let's keep in touch. Thank you so much, Delia. Nice talking to everyone. Thank you so much, Beverly, for sharing your thoughts with us today. The conversation brought back many childhood memories for me. mentioned before, the idea of natural talent is what is stopping the vast majority of people from developing their true potential. Let's say you're a mason. You've had the same job for 15 years, but all of a sudden you decide you want to become a painter. The thought of not being naturally good at painting can be scary to you because you might not have been born into an artistic family or you might not even truly believe in your talents. If you think you can never reach the level of well-known geniuses, such as Picasso or Dali, you're thinking in the worst way about your potential. Your talent comes from your hard work. It's only a matter of how much effort and energy you're willing to put in. And while you're taking steps in that direction, you'll get up with a smile every morning. Comparing yourself to artists who have already made it, who are at the top in their field when you're just starting, is not the solution. You would find it ridiculous if Tarantino stopped making movies by comparing himself to Orson Welles, or if Hans Zimmer never dared to touch a violin after listening to Mozart. It is important to learn from others and to be inspired by them, but never should you compare yourself to anybody else in the world. What comes from you is unique. You're not a derivative version of somebody else. If you didn't make it in your 20s, you can make it in your 30s. And if you didn't make it in your 30s, you can make it in your 40s. And if you didn't make it in your 40s, you can make it in your 50s. And just remember Grandma Moses. She was a painter. And she didn't start painting until, I think, in her 80s. And one of the most prolific painters. Never too time. late. Never too late. Never so too have late. fun. That's what it's all about. That's why antiheroes are so popular in film, TV, and books. An antihero is a character who, like us, is imperfect. They lack conventional heroic qualities and attributes such as idealism, courage and morality. This kind of character brings balance in a world where perfect heroes have always been idolized. Take the world's most famous hero, Superman. He is, of course, the most powerful being in the world. He embodies values that America prides itself on, strength, heroism and justice, but how many people prefer Batman, whose only real superpower is his wealth and courage? What are you? I'm Batman. I'm Batman. Batman, Alfred. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. I am the Batman. I'm the Batman. Nowadays, many of us have grown tired of the perfect hero. That's why we look for characters that put an end to the cliché of the perfect man. We like characters who struggle with their environment and to try to make the best out of what life brings them. 
They are not good people. They are riddled with flaws and weaknesses, but they wake up every day and try to make the best out of the bitterness of life. And who doesn't find that relatable? Here is one of the 21st century's most loved anti-heroes, Walter White himself. That's right. Now, say my name. Eisenberg. You're goddamn right. This final point brings us back to the early man with the first civilizations and their religions. The idea of righteous God is quite recent compared to the existence of human beings. Ancient Greek gods, for example, had many flaws which made them far from perfect. Of course, they were symbols of strength and righteousness by embodying various virtues. But because of their certain faults, their followers found them quite accessible. You could even say that some gods were even morally extremely debatable. Zeus, for instance, was the god of all gods, father of most was a serial murderer, rapist, and torturer. He wasn't exactly the idea of perfection. However, these violent gods were created based on man's own flaws. They were never perfect because none of us are. That's why when looking to unleash our highest potential, we'll always have a margin for improvement, and we'll always be looking for more. Unleashing your highest potential doesn't mean becoming perfect. It means having the courage to learn, to experience, to work, and most importantly, to fail and try again. But the real answer to your question is that when it feels scary to jump, Ian, that is exactly when you jump. Otherwise, you end up staying in the same place your whole life. And that I can't do. As explored in today's episode, directing the arrow back to self and unleashing your highest potential isn't about you becoming perfect. It's about two things, your will to find what makes you happy and working on this thing that motivates you. Unleashing your highest potential doesn't have to result in having millions of pounds or owning a private jet. You growing by what you love is the best way to become your best self. Try, work, fail, and start again until you win, but never give up. As the saying goes, better have remorse than regrets. Thanks for listening and I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Metaphorically Speaking. Don't forget if you'd like to suggest a metaphor for an upcoming show, you can reach us at colorful.com and we'd love you to share the show with your friends. Metaphorically Speaking is also a podcast and you can find it on Apple, Spotify and all major streaming platforms. You know we depend on you to help us grow so we can produce the best content for you to enjoy. Before I go, I must say thank you so much to my guest, Beverly Douglas, 
Your story was remarkable and I'm so glad that you are now enjoying your retirement and having those wonderful memories of the book, Cutie. It certainly did put a smile on my face. What a title. Join us for another metaphor next week. Until then, I'm Delia Delore. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Metaphorically Speaking, created by Delia Delore Productions, with original distribution by Colourful. This episode was hosted by Delia Delore and had segments written by Paul Ferretti. Script supervisor, Sabina Lauchopra Garcia. Production assistance and social media graphics by Odua Osemwenke. The final programme was edited by Jonathan Woods and social media videos by Ernie Deneve.